0: The Word of God says in Exodus chapter 14, verses 1 through 20, Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Hahiroth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. Pursued them, all of Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and encamped at the sea by Pi Hahiroth in front of Baal Baal Zephon. Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of the cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. This is the word of the Lord. It's a large text to, uh, to walk through, to communicate in a short amount of time. But um, we'll seek to just pull out a few highlights and some thoughts that really um, target our own lives. I'd like to call this episode Trapped. Just simply trapped. One word. And the reason for it is just as the children of Israel are trapped in a few ways, I believe they correlate very closely or correspond to our lives today. And I think you'll see that come out um, again very clearly Three ways that they're trapped. I'd like to suggest they are trapped by the inexplicit, which is that which is not definite or clearly expressed, conveyed, explained. They're trapped by inquietude. Uh, Inquietude, inquietude, um, I grew up in a French country and the same word, inquietude, is um, anxiety um, or, or worry. Well, that's exactly what inquietude is. It's not being quiet. It's a mind that is not quiet and that's an anxious mind. And finally, they're trapped by inaction, inaction. and we're going to discuss uh, three times when it's time to stop praying. They're trapped by inaction, so we'll see that too, Lord willing. Now as we, um, think through this idea of being trapped. I had a picture in my mind, and I couldn't find a picture that really conveyed exactly what uh, what, I, what I wanted to share. And so, if you're watching on uh, on YouTube or some other um, some other platform, um, then you can you can see this picture I'm showing you at the moment. If you're listening, I'll explain it to you. But since I couldn't find an image of it, I created one on AI art and. Uh, I had this picture of a man sitting in a prison cell, but the prison cell is broken down. It's a dilapidated uh, prison cell, and he's just sitting there looking out the window with those iron bars at a beautiful starry night sky. He has access to freedom, but he's choosing to live, choosing to stay in this prison cell of confinement, of bondage, of slavery. How many of us does this picture Here we are sitting trapped in our situation. We feel trapped by a relationship um, uh, that that, that, that somebody's um, expectations or opinions or uh, some schedule in our life or maybe some ideology or trapped by the mindset of politics around us or trapped by fear. I don't know what you're trapped by but God wants to set you free by his word. No, not set you free to do your own thing, not set you free to just uh, enjoy life the way you want to enjoy life, but set you free to serve him, to know him, to recognize and live out the purpose for which you were created. And so we want to discuss trapped. Are you trapped? Am I living a trapped life when in reality we are a free people? Notice how it starts out, then the Lord said to Moses, we talked about that last time, that's the full verse, then the Lord said to Moses, that means listen up, listen up, it deserves a full verse, and again, we're not talking inspiration of individual verse numbers because we know those were added later on, but again, it draws our attention. Look at verse 2, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of pi between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-zaphon, you shall encamp facing it by the sea. So we're discussing that we can be trapped by the inexplicit, that which maybe God doesn't explain fully to us, which is most all things um, we see in part, right? But we see enough because he has clearly communicated his heart, who he is, and ultimately the Lord Jesus Christ. But notice what happens here. Hahiroth. That just means like mouth of the gorges. So I'm guessing this is discussing, it's describing the geographical terrain in which they were at. But um, with that, they, they're encamping between Migdal and the sea. Migdal just means tower. So this is their place. But notice what God says. Turn back. You're going to go to a certain place and then turn back. And then he talks about facing Baal Zephon. I just want to note, when God says turn back, it can sometimes mean like, oh wait, did God lose his way? Um, why is God having me backtrack? Uh, hang on. There's intentionality to it. God brought them to a point and then he says, turn around. He wants them facing. He wants them looking. He wants them concentrating on something specific. And what is that? Well, Baal Zephon, which is interesting because this is not an Egyptian god. This is a lord of the north, Baal Zephon. That is a god of the Canaanite people. This is a god of the land in which they're going to. Isn't it fascinating? God is just one by one strategically systematically annihilated the reputation of the gods of Egypt, culminating with that god, Pharaoh, who sat on the throne. And now what's the first thing he does as they go out into the wilderness? He says, consecrate yourself to me, and then he has them go and face Baal-Zaphon, and say the gods where you're going are just like the gods that you are leaving. Don't be tempted and lured by them. We can easily walk away from some idol of this world, only to go embrace another. And he shows right away, I'm greater than them all. They face this Baal Zephon, and we're, we see what happens as they face him. This whole scene by the by the sea, by the Red Sea, occurs. I'll talk a little bit more about the the Red Sea, um, not too much, but a couple views and whatnot in the next podcast, Lord willing. Um, But let's just keep walking through. So we have this inexplicit, but it goes on. Verses three through nine talk about what Pharaoh does. Look at verse three. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel. Now it does not say that Moses conveys this to the people. As in, it's not like Moses says, hey guys, you should know that Pharaoh's going to come after us. God already told me about this. And then when he does, this is what's going to happen. No, but it says, Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they're wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in and I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. So sometimes God doesn't let us know the inside scoop. But he knows the inside scoop, obviously. He's omniscient. And so in that, he wants our trust and obedience. But in verse 3, look at the word for wander. Um, It says they're wandering in the land. That uh, word can mean bewildered or entangled. Um, It carries the idea of someone who's confused or perplexed uh and and this is a significant word it's only used three times in scripture over in esther chapter 3 verse 15 joel one eighteen, and here but i want us to see that this is what pharaoh sees of the people they're going to wander in the land they're going to be perplexed they're going to be confused and so he wants to target that confusion and so we go on and we see that god's gonna this, this uh, god says i will harden pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them And then he says, I will get glory. I'm going to get glory over Pharaoh. I love that, that in the end, God gets the glory. I'm going to get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. That is a a gracious thing, and yet it's also uh, oftentimes a phrase used of a people who are under judgment in Scripture. And it says, and they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. We could say that, yeah, they repented their mind changed. Matthew Henry made an interesting comment on this. He said, they who never truly repented of their sins now heartily repent of their only good action. That's what we see in verse five here. We see that they repented. They changed toward the people and they say, what is this that we have done that we have let them go from serving us? Now I could think of a lot of reasons why they let them go. Like plague one, Two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, the death of the firstborn. But they've already forgotten, apparently. Why did we let them go? Why did we leave our life of sin? Oh, did we not forget the bondage of sin? Did we not forget the slavery of sin? We're going to see that when the children of Israel start complaining in just a few verses. Everyone's complaining, basically, here. Uh, look at verse six. Uh, in verse six, it tells us, so he made ready his chariot and took his army with him. If you take this literally, it's Pharaoh hitched or he, uh, he prepared his chariot. It's not that he ordered his chariot to be prepared. Pharaoh's like, let's go. And he gets going. He gets out there and he's like hooking up those horses to his chariot. But I want you to see not just the urgency of Pharaoh's Uh, pharaoh's decree to go after them but I also want you to see the extent of it because notice how it says here he took his army with him 600 chosen chariots that's interesting 600 chosen chariots these choice chariots typically at least this is what um, different different historical writers have shared that um, the first 600 chariots they would have a charioteer I don't know if that's how I say it charioteer Um, the one who drives the chariot and one warrior in them and this was the king's special guard so when it talks about these 600 chariots uh, chosen chariots that would have been Pharaoh's entourage his 600 warriors and their charioteers and him but then you have in addition to that look what it look what it says and the other chariots of Egypt with officers and all of them and we can kind of even see that from this word officers that's being used, that typically what happens is it's not just two people in those chariots. They would have an officer, and I I, I think they may have had like two other warriors. Um, Yeah, one that, yes, one that would... be just like a, a a regular warrior but one who was in charge of defending the charioteer so my point is this my point is that Pharaoh didn't just send 600 chariots out he sent his whole army out he was all in for this and so here he is going after um, these children of Israel who though equipped for a battle um, they have not faced battle and so here they are and they're they're, they're heading out now It's fascinating in verse 8, as Pharaoh heads out, it says, The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel. Well, the people of Israel were all going out defiantly. That's the last time that we see this phrase, king of Egypt, used in regards to Pharaoh. But here they are. They're um, seemingly trapped between the sea and this hard place. um, Baal Zephon and the armies of Pharaoh are after them. Talking about being trapped by the inexplicit. What is going on, God? Do you ever feel that way? Do you ever feel like both options is a lose-lose or just there's nowhere to turn? Well, that was the children of Israel in this context. They absolutely felt trapped in and they voiced their opinion. Verses 10 through 12, right? As Pharaoh draws near, what happens? The people of Israel lift up their eyes. Now, you remember, they had the fire. They had the cloud with them they lift up their eyes. That tells me they look off of the cloud and the fire. They look off of the presence of God and they look on to the presence of the oncoming chariots. They look on to the presence of their former slavery, of that former house of slavery, house of bondage. How often do we do that too? We've been delivered and yet, what do we do? We turn our eyes onto the past. We turn our eyes onto the things we've done. We turn our eyes onto past fears. And that's what they're doing here. Um, but what do they say to Moses? Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? This is utter. Uh, sarcasm going on. Egypt was a land of the dead. It was a land of grave plots, of pyramids, of, of, of royal, um, royal what, what can I say, mummifying. Uh, this was a land that glorified death. Are there no graves in Egypt? They're mocking Moses. They're mocking the Lord as it were. And then what do they say in verse 12, is not this what we said to you in Egypt? I told you so. (laughs) I told you so. Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. God has unusual battle battle plans. None of us deny that. We recognize that. I mean, look at the way he dealt with Abraham and Sarah having a child in their old age, or the story of Gideon and his army in Judges chapters 6 through 8, right? When he deemed... Even 10,000 that had been whittled down from many more deemed that too many to fight the Midianites and ended up with 300 men. And even when they went to battle, they didn't go to battle with typical weapons but with clay pots and, and, and lights inside of that and their voices. I think about Jehoshaphat and his battle with the Ammonites and how God used a very interesting approach to battle and that was leading the way with music. I think of Elisha, Elisha and his servant in 2 Kings chapter 6 when Elisha's servant is fearful because he sees the armies of Syria and what does Elisha pray? Lord, open the eyes of my servant. Show him there's more with us than with them. See, the problem in life is not with what we see. The problem is what we don't see. The reality is that Pharaoh was coming with 600 of his personal chariots and the whole army. It's not that they weren't coming. We don't have to deny reality as we walk with Christ. We don't have to deny the fact that our situation seems rough. We don't have to deny the fact that the odds are against us. We don't have to deny the fact that we're in a hard place. We don't have to deny that the Red Sea is on our back. The problem's not with what we see. The problem is where we aren't looking what we don't see. And that's the presence of God. That's the promises of God. I will take you to the other side. And so we see this very vividly in this picture. In Psalm 106, 7 and 8, we're told our fathers when they were in Egypt did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his name's sake that he might make known his mighty power Janet Paschal, a southern gospel singer and a a wonderful woman, said this. Well, she said it. She sang it. um, It's a great song of hers. Must have felt strange to end up stranded between an army and and the sea. They must have felt forsaken, wondering why God wasn't all he said he'd be. When your back's against the wall, it's the hardest place of all, but somewhere between provision and impossibility, God will make a way. When there seems to be no way, forever he is faithful. He'll make a road when you bear a heavy load, I know, God will make a way. And so um, just two verses earlier the Israelites were described as leaving Egypt defiantly but now I would say they're discouraged. It's amazing how quickly defiance can turn to discouragement Uh, But keep going. Look at verse 13. Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm. See the salvation of the Lord which he will work for you today. Uh, For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. Now, I've already started this portion, but if at first that they were troubled by this inexplicit, aspect of God they felt trapped by the inexplicit well now what they're trapped by this inquietude they're trapped by this uh by this uh non-stop engagement of the mind if I can say it like that in other words they're anxious they're worried but what does the Lord do about their inquietude well notice Moses reprimands the people and says fear not this is a command. This is, a, I should say that this is not a command. This is more so a rebuke to them, right? He's saying, do not be afraid. Stand firm. Be still. Um, grammarians will call this a uh, negative imperative. A, the strongest possible form of expressing negation in the Hebrew language. Do not be afraid. Um, remember, God said this often before. He said it to Abram in Genesis 15 verse 1 as the first time of saying, don't be afraid. When Jesus comes to earth, how often did he tell his disciples, don't be afraid? We're going to see it later on again, um, all the way to the book of Revelation, when John receives the revelation of Jesus Christ, don't be afraid. Why is this such a key phrase for us to remember? Because God's saying, It's not that there aren't a lot of things around you to be fearful of. It's that I'm greater than those things. You can trust me. And so he says, don't be afraid with your inquietude of heart. But I want to move on because I want to discuss that there's a time for standing still. There's a time for this uh, holy activity of, of prayer. And that's what um, Moses seems to be doing here. He says, the Lord will fight for you. You only have to be silent. There's, there's this recognition that God, you have to act. And that is absolutely true. There's at, no doubt that we are to wait on the Lord. There's no doubt our salvation is completely his work. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 make that clear. It's not by works of righteousness, which we've done. There's nothing we can do. All for for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. There's no doubt that in order to see the salvation of our God, God works the salvation on our behalf. But there is a time to stop praying and there is a time to take action. And that's what we see in the very next verse in verse 15. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. See, he's delivered them from the land, and now he wants them to walk in his ways. Walk into the promises that he has given them. As we think about this, uh, let, let me give you a, a great quote uh, um, from Charles Spurgeon. He said this, There's a time for praying, but there's also a time for holy activity. Prayer is adapted for almost every season, yet not prayer alone, for there comes every now and then a time when even prayer must take a secondary place. Now that might seem hard for for you to hear, some of you at least, if we say prayer must take a second place, but there are times in scripture to stop praying. I'll give you a few examples. Um, In Joshua chapter uh, 7, you'll remember that uh, they go and attack Ai, but they don't consult the Lord first, and they lose the battle, and and then Joshua's wondering like, why? He's ripping his clothes. He's on his face before the Lord, and what does the Lord say? Get up, Joshua. (laughs) Stop praying, Joshua, and go take action. There's sin in the camp, and Achan's sin, specifically. See, when it's time to repent, We need to stop praying and repent and when i say repent obviously repenting before the lord but taking that action of repentance there's also this example used in matthew chapter 5 when the lord jesus is speaking in verse 23 He says if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember your brother has something against you leave your gift there before the altar and go first be reconciled to your brother and then come offer your gift what's what's going on there See, there's a time to repent, but now there's a time to reconcile. If you're praying, but God says, no, I want you first to be reconciled. There's, there, there's, there's something between you and another. God says, take that action first. In other words, I've already said it. Don't be looking for something else from me when you're ignoring what I've blatantly already shared with you. And here we see a third, not a time to repent, not a time to reconcile, but a time to respond. Fear not, stand firm, see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. But then look at verse 15. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. I just want to ask you a question. Are you asking the Lord for something where he's already spoken and said, I want you to take action. I want you to respond to my word. And maybe that response is repentance. Maybe that response is reconciliation with someone, or more importantly, or most importantly, I should say, with God. And of course, we get to be ministers of reconciliation because God has already bridged the divide through the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to accept the reconciliation he offers. And so we see that there is this time to also stop praying. So what have we noticed trapped by the inexplicit, trapped by inquietude, and now what we see them is trapped by inaction. They are trapped by inaction. They're trapped by not taking that next step forward. So what what follows from this inaction? Well, look at verse uh, 16. The Lord says, lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And then he goes on to say how he's going to harden the hearts of the Egyptians and then that they will know that he is the Lord. I just wanna make note that in verse 17, that word for honor, that word that he's going to get glory, he's gonna get honor over Pharaoh and all his host, it's that word kaved, which is the idea of a weightiness. In other words, um, think, about, think about if I had a weight and I dropped that weight into a bucket of water that's filled to the brim, what is going to happen when I drop a weight into a bucket of water? Well, obviously the water is going to be displaced and some of that water is going to come out of that bucket. Why? Because both cannot share the same place. That weightiness displaces that which is not as weighty. Well, God says, I'm going to get glory. I'm going to show my weightiness. I'm going to displace their glory, the glory of Egypt, the, the, the The power they think they possess Um, of course it's it's just such a picture going on that uh, the crushing weight of the seas are going to come upon the Egyptians and to me that's that's a picture of that weight of God the glory of God that God's glory takes out the glory of other things friends don't think this is just about Egypt and its armies. It's about you and about me. Are there areas of my life where I'm seeking to get the glory? Are there areas where I'm pursuing my own vain glory? Listen, God shares his glory with no man and God does get the glory at the end. Anywhere where we are not relinquishing that glory, giving God the honor, that is an area of our life, my friend, where you Or I will be the loser at the end. Bow your knee to the Lord. Whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Because he alone is worthy. As we finish up this chapter, we see, or finish up our portion, we see in the last two verses for this time together, Verses 19 and 20, the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. This is uh, such a picture, the picture of darkness and light. And what separates darkness and light? The presence of God. See, what side of the presence were they on? That's what made all the difference. This is, um... A picture that comes out vividly actually in in the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 6 and chapter 7, we see pictures of the Lamb, that Lamb who was slain for our sins. But in chapter 6 verses 15 through 17, listen carefully because I pray this isn't you, but if it is, repent, respond to the gospel today. It says, the kings of the earth, think about it, Pharaoh, the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains calling to the mountains and rocks fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb the wrath of the Lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand the wrath of the Lamb but the very next chapter Revelation 7, verses 13 through 15. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Friends, same Lamb. Wrath of the Lamb, blood of the Lamb. One in light, one in dark. What side are you on? Are you in the world, Egypt? Or are you among God's people? In this picture of Israel. See, the pillar of the cloud went from before their face and stood behind them. Hey, one interesting thing I just want to make mention of, and I just I just quoted from the, the, the KJV. The reason I did is because some of your translations say, what that translation says, it, it says that It came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. It came. Now you might say, why are you even bringing this out? This is in verse 20. Um, I read from the ESV and the ESV doesn't say it. But the word it is not in the text. And the reason I say that is the Lord is not an it. And when it's referring to, again, look in context, verses 19 and 20. It says, the pillar, I'm reading from the ESV right now, the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. But again, going back to the KJV, it says in verse 20, and it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. This might seem like such a minor point. Maybe it's a point I should just have skipped. But I really believe in acknowledging where in some way or another, God deserves the glory. And I believe this is a beautiful picture of it. It's not that it came, it's not that this cloud came, it's that the Lord came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel, and the Lord is not an it. He's everything. and. As we close out this episode, I want you to recognize that this is the case for our life too. John Lange said this, that which gives light to the believers constitutes nocturnal darkness for the unbelievers, and that is the irremovable barrier between the two. See, Ephesians 5.8 says, "You won, at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk, As children of light. Walk as children of light. Friends there's two sides to be on. There's darkness and there's light. Which side are you? And let me close by asking do you feel trapped by any of these things today? Do you feel trapped by your circumstances and situations? Do you feel trapped by your lack of understanding? Are you anxious? Are you worried? Could it be the Lord is saying to you today, change your focus. Look at me, not it. Look at me. Look at my presence. Look at my promises. And in the light of my presence and my promises, move forward. Walk in my way. Walk as children of the light, knowing that I will never leave you and I'll never forsake you. This has been Into Your Bible. I pray it's an encouragement to you and please feel free to share it with others and check out our website at www.intoyourbible.org for more resources, for study notes from these uh, different episodes. And uh, remember, keep your eyes on the Lord. Our prayer is for a generation who loves the Word of God and the God of the Word. Thanks for listening to Into Your Bible, the podcast, an extension of the ministry of Rock International. This is a place where we dive into the Holy Bible, seeking a generation who loves the Word of God and the God of the Word. Wherever you listen, subscribe to not miss an episode. And if you want to take things a step further, leave a review so others can find it too. For free resources, show notes, and more, check out our website at www.intoyourbible.org. Until next time, keep diving in.